Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. People in democratic societies take their freedom for granted. This man's life was different. He was the most popular young actor of his generation. You may have recognized that first voice in the trailer. It's Brian Cox, best known as the patriarch in succession. He narrated Oleg, one of the two docs I'll be featuring today in preparation for this year's Richmond International Film Festival. Last week, I featured two narratives from the festival. This year's festival will feature more than 170 films, live music performances, and special events all over town from June 7th through 12th. Being able to find your community, whatever that is, music is really a way to find your people. That was an excerpt from the first documentary we'll be featuring today, Mix Tape Trilogy, which features three different encounters of musicians with their fans. In addition to the Indigo Girls, who were featured in that excerpt, plus the devoted fan who's seen more than 300 of their concerts, the movie features Indian-American jazz artist Vijay Iyer and his relationship with Garnett, a man of the streets from Kingston, Jamaica. Finally, a rapper and activist, Talib Quayle, inspires and transforms the life of Mike, a hip-hop architect from Detroit. Sifter Review of the Week Killing It on Peacock Craig Robinson heads the cast of this unique comedy from the creators of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. His marriage has failed and his job prospects are nil, so he enters a contest to kill pythons for a cash prize. It's Florida where they're rampant. Already this is a setup for comic potential, but that opportunity ramps up with Claudia O'Doherty's offbeat performance as his relentlessly upbeat, chatty partner. The narrative sometimes branches off into other characters' stories, which adds a new perspective with some truly touching emotional accents. Robinson's hapless delivery and the spiraling situations provide some absurdly outrageous circumstances and plenty of genuinely funny moments sweetened with a touch of heart. I gave it four and a half out of five stars. But note, there are 10 30-minute episodes, but only the first one is free. The others require a subscription to Peacock. Now let's start our conversation with Kathleen Ermitage, the director of Mixtape Trilogy. You're going to be in town. You're coming to Richmond for the Richmond International Film Festival. And your film is going to be the closing night feature film at the festival on June 12th at 6 p.m. So congratulations on that. Surprise guest drop-in. So speaking of music and your enjoyment of music, we have the executive director of the Richmond International Film Festival who dropped in. Heather Waters, welcome to Sifter. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Heather. Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. How are you? Hey, Jerry. I'm good. She said she's never been to Richmond, so she's ready to come see our beautiful city. And I know there's a big music component for Riff. What else is going on during the week? Yeah, as you mentioned, Jerry, so we have a strong focus in, in music and film. We have about 21 artists that will be performing, coming in as far away as Germany and Belgium. Wow. And then, of course, yes, lots of different artists coming in 
from across the United States. So there's a lot of different music slash film events through the week, but the big performances uh, begin on Wednesday night at Vagabond uh, with our Urban Hip Hop Night. And we've got a cool panel that opens that up. It goes right into some incredible artists. Um, in fact, the artist Famo, it's going to be a treat to have him. He's coming in from Germany. He'll be in the lineup that night. And then Thursday night, after a singer-songwriter pitch session uh, to the filmmakers, we have a special edition of the Riff Shaco Sessions Live. The big, big performance day is at Hardywood, and there we have a full day of indoor, outdoor music. So both stages running and the G-Bombs, Jerry, I don't know if you are familiar with them, but cool punk band out of Virginia Beach. I just know the F-Bombs. I don't know any (laughs) G-Bombs. Well, are we supposed to be saying that on a podcast? No, no, we can't. It's radio too, so we have to. We can say F-Bomb, we just can't say what it stands for. Okay. So Mixtape Trilogy is a wonderful concept combination of this whole idea of music and film so it's a it's a great finish for the festival yeah you know we always really take a lot of time in selecting our opening and closing film i think this is the first year that we've ever had a doc opening the festival and a doc closing the festival and both wow. of them happen to have a strong music component but they also have some story elements to them that we feel are particularly relevant for right now, what's going on in the world. We're all in need of authentic connection. Kathleen's film is about that. And yet it touches on these other cool elements in terms of artists using their platform to really do good uh, within their own communities. So it really At the end of the day, she touches on a lot of different things music-wise, but it is about relationships on a lot of different levels. And the opening night is film, Song for Hope is similar. They did some things around the pandemic. But I told Kathleen, it's very rare that we have seen a film executed in the way that she does her storyline. The pieces that she really brought together within this film were pretty phenomenal. So Kathleen, our hat's off to you. Uh, That was one of the things that really made it special for us and one of the reasons why we, you know, chose it for closing night. Thank you for saying that. That it. Just so rewarding to hear that and that you saw and see so much in our film. Absolutely. Right. Well, thanks, Heather, for dropping in. You're welcome. Thank you for letting me pop in for a minute. That was a treat. The name of the film is Mixtape Trilogy, and it looks at three different musicians and their fans and the relationships. We'll get into that more deeply, but you worked on several other films as associate producer on Chasing Train, the John Coltrane documentary, Sergio Mendez and the Key of Joy, and I'm old enough to know who Sergio Mendez was, and Herb Albert, same thing with him. What's your thing with music? (laughs) I work with a production company in Los Angeles, and we often work on um, music documentaries. We just love them. You know, it's, uh, there's great stories, interesting people, but no, we love making those. And then for this particular project, there was a philanthropist in Boulder who approached me and wanted to make a a film about the power of music. Mixtape Trilogy is your first directorial effort. How did you get in that position? I'm really excited to have had the opportunity to do that. I always wanted to direct one. Like I said, I was approached by this philanthropist in Boulder who he's very much uh, a music enthusiast. He funds a lot of jazz artists. He said he wanted to make a film about the power of music. And so I said, 
yeah, let's talk more about what that means to you, but I'd like to direct this one. It's a trilogy, so there's three parts. And the first part is the one that most people will know, the Indigo Girls, and one of their biggest fans. And then an Indian-American jazz pianist, Vijay Iyer, and his walking fan, Garnett, who actually, I have to tell you, being a Virginian, you know what I'm going to say. He's walking down these streets. I'm like, wait a minute, that's UVA. Yes, yes, yes. Does he live here, or did he just happen to be visiting, or why was he in UVA? He uh, is associated with the university there. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. As well as, as other universities in the country. And the third one is the hip hop artist slash architect, which is kind of an interesting combination from Detroit. This art means so much to me. I've never seen something more unifying than hip hop music. We hear about the artists and then we hear about the people who they have been influenced by or who are their fans. First of all, this had to be an amazing challenge because there's millions of artists out there. How did you identify those three? And then even harder, how did you find out, okay, we got to have somebody that they have a relationship with that's going to make this a full story? Well, the third story, it's Mike Ford, the hip-hop architect, and then Talib Kweli is the hip-hop artist. And I found Mike Ford, and he was the first person that I met with. Um, He was out in Denver for an architectural association, an AIA, I think, chapter conference or meeting. And I met him outside of the airport in Denver and talked with him about my film. As part of my treatment, though, I had a list of artists that I was hoping, you know, would be... The wish list. Yeah. I wanted some artists that were comfortable and liked talking about the process of their music. Um, And then also we had wanted to have, you know, diversity in the subjects, um, meaning the, the fans that are included in the film too, and a variety of stories. So Indigo Girls were, they were on the list. I was very honored and thrilled that they agreed to be in the film. And then uh, Vijay Iyer has a very active kind of advocacy on his Twitter feed. It had come across my attention. And how many rejections did you get? (laughs) You know, not too many, but we did get some. A lot of it's like schedule conflicts or, you know, I don't always know the reason. We got pretty lucky, I think. Sure. It's a great cross-section, which is good, too. Um, Obviously, you've got lots of great footage of people performing, and that was something that came with the artists, obviously, to some extent. But what were some of the challenges in terms of timing or getting the right person to go with them? Or what what were the challenges that you faced? Let's see. I'm trying to think of what the challenges might have been. No challenges. Wow, that sounds (laughs) great. (laughs) No, there were always challenges. I mean, you know, the pandemic was definitely one of them. We had... Uh, most of our photography done by early 2020. And then we had four more shoots and then the the pandemic happened. And so that kind of shut that down for a little while. So we had to get really creative about how we were going to finish the film. That was probably the biggest challenge. And then also a challenge, or maybe I'd call it a joy of doing this work is building the trust with each of the subjects. You know, these are their stories and we're taking up their time to highlight you know, part of their lives. So that takes a little bit of time too, getting to know them and, and making them feel comfortable. So they'll want to share their stories with us. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned COVID because of course you had a little COVID coda at the end of the film, you came back and kind of said, okay, here's how COVID affected. So I guess you decided to do that once things opened up a little bit. We made that decision before things were opened up. It was a big decision. You know, when you put in that kind of content, is it an event that's historic enough that we should put a note on it or will it date the film? So there was a lot of discussion about it among the members of our team. And we thought it had enough to do with the story about 
being connected, you know, what is that relationship between a musician and their fan or their audience? And certainly through the pandemic, nobody was going to any concerts. I mean, it was right. it was painful for some people not to have the opportunity to do that. So we thought that it was an important part of the story. So what are you working on right now? With the company that I work with in Los Angeles, we have uh, some other music docs. So we're just finishing up one about blood, sweat, and tears. And then we have a baseball one that we're working on and a couple other things. So um, I've been keeping busy with that. And it's been a nice uh, opportunity to kind of regain some energy around some other projects that I will get back to and develop. Thank you so much for doing this. And I look forward to having a chance to catch up with you in June and share the the joy of the movie with everybody else. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that too. Thanks so much for interviewing me today. That was Kathleen Hermitage, director of Mixtape Trilogy, which will be screened at this year's Richmond International Film Festival on Sunday, June 12th at 6 p.m. at The Bird. Links are on the website at tvjerry.com. Now, let's head in a very different direction with Oleg, the documentary about famed Russian actor Oleg Vidov. So I'm thrilled today to be with two people, Joan Borston Vidov, who is actually the widow of Oleg and the producer of the film, and Nadia Tuss, who is the director. Actually, she's from Australia, but she has joined us today from Mykonos. She's there for a wedding, so she's getting a beautiful view, I'm assuming, out the windows there. So welcome, both of you, to Sifter. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you may have recognized the voice in that trailer. It's Brian Cox, of course, who is best known as the patriarch in succession. I have to tell you all, before we get started, a few years back, my husband and I were in London to see Rock and Roll, the David Mamet play, and Brian Cox was starring in it. Somewhere in the middle of the second act, somebody's phone went off in the audience. And I figured it was somebody who was too embarrassed to answer it. So it just kept ringing and ringing. And finally, Brian just stopped the show and said, would you please take care of that? And they hustled around in their purse or whatever. And as soon as that was taken care of, he jumped right back in the show and they went on. So that was my first exposure to Brian Cox in person, which was great. So how did y'all enlist him to be the narrator for this story? I called a very famous voice agent and I had a list from Nadia of all these, you know, important actors. And the agent said, no, you want Brian Cox. And I said, why do we want Brian Cox? And he said, well, he taught acting in the Soviet Union for two years. Oh, wow. And he wrote a book about it. And then the BBC produced a two-part documentary called Brian Cox's Russia. Oh, cool. And his daughter graduated from St. Petersburg University. And in fact, he knew so much about Russia, he could pronounce everything perfectly. <laughs> and it, was just, it was a great choice, right, Nadia? Oh, wonderful choice. Um, he's such an amazing man. You know, on the surface, he looks like he would be sort of scary. (laughs) But in actual fact, he is so warm and considerate and human. Uh, It was such a pleasure to be working with him. Nadia, let me ask you first, why did you want to make this movie? Oh, because Oleg's life is just so interesting. It's so diverse. There's a surprise at every corner. He, as an actor, as an artist, was extraordinary, not only in the beginning when he was in Russia, but right through his life. You're living down in Australia, so how did you hear about Oleg Vidov? You know, virtually every Russian, irrespective of age, knows about Oleg Vidov because he was such a huge luminary. 
And, you know, it's interesting because in the trailer it says that he's the James Dean of Russia. Later on in the movie, somebody called him the Robert Redford of Russia, which I think is much more appropriate because he's dashingly handsome and he's blonde. But anyway, so how did you hear about him? Because I'd never heard of him until this documentary, and I've been reviewing movies since the 70s. Well, first of all, I have Russian heritage. Okay. And I've done a lot of movies in the U.S. I met Joan because she was distributing one of our movies. Through Joan, I met her husband, Oleg Vidov. Uh-huh. Many times we had coffee or we had lunches and this is the three of us. And then there was one time when Joan was running very late for a meeting. So Oleg came to that meeting. And speaking of that, Joan, so how did you meet him while we're on the subject? In uh, 1982 or 83, I was working for the LA Times and they sent me to New Delhi to interview Federico Fellini's fortune teller. And after I finished the interview, he took my hand and he looked at it and he said, you're going to marry a man from a strange country. LA Times sent me to a lot of strange countries in those days. And I always wondered, you know, is this where Romeo lives? (laughs) Uh, And then Romeo came to Italy where I was living and he was from a strange country. That was 1985. You met and you fell in love and you got married, obviously. So what was the impetus to make a documentary about his life? Oleg had been writing his autobiography for about three years when he passed unexpectedly. And he left me a list of 60 some people in eight countries in order to fill in the gaps. No, my husband never did anything small. And so as I kind of began preparations to start traveling the world and interviewing these people, um, I grew up in the film industry and my friends kept saying to me, you have to film these interviews because maybe it's a documentary. After X number of interviews, I became clear that it was a documentary. And then I started searching for the right director. And Oleg always said that Nadia, whose grandparents escaped the Bolshevik Revolution and raised her in Greece, reciting Russian poetry and acting out Russian plays, he always said she has a Russian soul. So she was the first choice. So Nadia, you did shoot interviews, I'm assuming in Russia, because there were so many directors and actors. Were they shot in Russia? And if so, what kind of issues were there in terms of the political statements and their own risk? I think this question belongs to Joan because Joan was the one who went to Russia and she did those interviews. Ah, okay. Well, Joan? Oleg's friends were thrilled to be part of this. You know, when we started this process, we realized that none of his friends were getting younger or healthier. Right. What was one of the reasons that it was important when we still thought it was only for the book to record them? I mean, Milena Dravich, his co-star from Battle of the River Naretva, was so sick that she had to bring an oxygen tank with her. Wow. She was determined to tell the story. And a lot of the other actors also were not well, but they made a point of getting themselves in shape for a couple of days so that they could come and do a good interview in his honor. Some, I mean, some of the things that they say, there's nothing just really condemning, but they did talk about some of the challenges and some of the strictures in Russian life. So was this a period when they didn't have to fear, fear for their lives or their careers by saying these things? They weren't afraid of talking about the Soviet Union. Because that was in the past or not the current Russia. My only real problems were I tried to get the KGB file. And first they told me, come back in a month. Then they said, in a month, they said, well, our countries have bad relations. Come back in another month. Then they said he doesn't have a KGB file. So then I got a KGB, an ex-KGB agent who now works for the FSB to go and look for the file. And he said, I can't give it to you, but I can tell you it's full of compromising letters from his ex-wife and her friends. So that's how you found out what the source of his uh, initial troubles were in Russia. 
Correct. The part that I think might also be of interest is that Joan went and did these interviews, but I did speak to some of the technical people who were doing the interviews in preparation. And it was fascinating for me, it was fascinating to see how difficult it was to organise things in Russia at that time. The system is quite different to the system that we know, let's say, in the West, in America and Australia. Uh, So for Joan, I think it was just so difficult and so expensive to get these interviews done. Are you talking about logistical, like just trying to get things scheduled and getting us permissions and all that was a lot more of a bureaucratic burden, perhaps? What I found with some of the, say, for example, the manager, the unit manager or the cameraman, if I were talking to them, they would be stipulating certain things that were really, you know, outside of of normality. And Joan, I'm talking about some of the people who kind of wanted lots of money and they weren't delivering the goods. When we were trying to see if we were going to shoot in St. Petersburg and then Moscow, we hired that person who basically didn't do a very good job for us but he got paid over the top for it. I remember the same one that Nadia's talking about. I mean, he'd worked with a lot of American productions. Well, then let's segue over to America, because I know you interviewed some people here, including Walter Hill, the famous director. And Oleg was in Red Heat, which is probably the most prominent role he had in an American movie, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Did you try to get Mr. Schwarzenegger to interview? I tried. And he wasn't willing, I'm guessing? I never got an answer, even though Walter Hill said, please tell Arnold, I would like him to participate. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's too bad, because that would have been cool. There was another scene that was interesting near the end of the film, when Oleg was advanced in years, and he was walking down the boardwalk in Santa Monica, I believe that was, and two women happened to recognize him from Russia. Was that just, I mean, did you walk around all day hoping that would happen, or is that just a serendipity? It happened all over the world, day and night. Wow. We traveled a lot you know, in the airport in Thailand, in the airport in Havana, in the airport in Tel Aviv, in the airport in France, someone always recognized him and ran up and was like the scene that you saw. Oh, Oleg, oh, I can't believe you're here. Please, can I have an autograph? It was quite amazing. And in Tel Aviv in 2017, we were mobbed in the streets of Tel Aviv repeatedly. Wow, that's incredible. That speaks to his charisma and fame, obviously. So you want to tell us, Joan, briefly about the connection with Russian animation, because that was a pretty fascinating sidebar in the documentary. So Oleg not only graduated not only the acting department, but also the directing department of the Soviet State Film School. He loved Russian animation, and he kept saying that, you know, it's better for children than American animation. It's not violent. It has good moral values. Right. And the very first time he went back to Russia was in late 1991. And everything was falling apart. And he, you know, made his way over to the animation studio. And they were looking for someone who could distribute their animation in the West. And he said, well, who better than me? So he came back and told me, you know, we're going to be distributing dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of Russian animation. And I said, as I did in the movie, who's going to buy them, Oleg? Yeah, really? He was convinced that this was a, a good seller and it would change the perceptions of Soviet people as ugly and and terrible. Uh, In the end, he took over the sales and he sold Russian animation to 55 countries. It was dubbed into God knows how many languages. And he really felt that 
he had a part in changing perception, Cold War perceptions of Russians. That's great. Now, I've got a question for both of you as producer and director. And uh, Nadia, you may have addressed this already, but I'm going to ask again because there may be something else. What was the biggest challenge in putting this documentary together? Finding a way of integrating the political content, the social content, and the individual content, making them really support each other and flow so that the A story, B story, and C story were all working in conjunction with each other. And then, of course, COVID hit, and there were scenes that we had to reenact. One scene in particular this is the, the escape scene, which we shot in Slovenia on the border of Slovenia and Austria. I was in Melbourne, Australia, in my office, and um, it was through technology that uh, we were able to hire the whole crew in Slovenia. And through technology, I had four different screens up so I could monitor the three cameras that I was using and cast it and find the locations, agree on them, rehearse with the actors and finally shoot it. So that was pretty challenging. Yeah, imagine. It opened the, the pathway to the fact that you actually can make a movie in another country if you have knowledge of the technology that's required. Joan, what would you say the biggest challenge was for you? Well, financial, because the budget kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. COVID was a real problem because we were almost done and we still had um, some interviews to do. And, you know, countries opened up at different times and shut down in the middle of, but we finally got it done. And then the real question was, where were we going to premiere? And of course, Russia seemed the most obvious, but we weren't sure until the very end that Moscow Film Festival was going to invite us. And I flew to Istanbul in order to fly to Moscow, and then they wouldn't. The Russians wouldn't let me in. Oh, so wow. I had to. I, I watched the premiere on someone's iPhone. Oh wow! And I was like waiting to see what was going to happen at the end. And they started rhythmically applauding like this and yelling, "Thank you, thank you, thank you." And that made my day. In Russian or in English? I'm assuming in Russian. In Russian. Right, right, right. What is that? Is that Nostro? Nostro? No, it's possible. Placebo. Right. Okay. And it was one of those words, one of the three Russian words I knew. I'm going to tell you one more funny story. So when we were in Israel in 2017, he held two impromptu fan meetings, uh, one in Ashkelon and one in Batyam. And a woman came who was carrying a postcard of Oleg that she'd bought 40 years before at one of the kiosks wow. in Moscow. And she had emigrated to Israel with it. And she said that she slept with it over her bed until she got married. And her husband said, take it down. <laughs> But she kept it anyway, somewhere else. He brought it to the, to the fan club meeting. That's real dedication. That's a real fan, isn't it? Yeah. Are either of you coming to Richmond for the screening? I am. Nadia, you too? Well, I, I hope to, but we'll see. I know that there's some politicians coming from D.C. For the movie, you mean? A lot of politicians and experts in Russia have been asking me, you know, where can I see the movie? So I told them Richmond and a, a bunch of them said that they could go. Oh. Now, all the people in this in the Russian embassy who asked are no longer there. Well, well yeah. For I wonder why. Hmm. <laughs> I hope to be there. Um, I've worked in Virginia before. Oh, really? Where? I wo I worked for uh, Signature Theater. Oh, Arlington in Northern Virginia, up near D.C. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We don't really count that as Virginia because it's part of D.C., but yeah, it really is technically Virginia. <laughs> You're right. Oh, so you do theater directing too, as well, obviously. I sure do. Absolutely. 
This has been really fascinating. I really enjoyed discovering who Oleg Vitov was. I'd never heard of him, like I said, and he was a fascinating character. And y'all have done a wonderful job on creating this movie. I want to thank you again. I've been talking with Joan Borsten Vidov, Oleg's widow and producer of the film, and Nadia Tas, who is the director. Thank you both for joining me today, and we look forward to screening the film in Richmond. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. This documentary will screen on Saturday, June 11th, 4.45 p.m. at Movieland. And there's a link on tvjerry.com. Coming soon. In theaters. Crimes of the Future, the latest from David Cronenberg, about a performance artist involved with the next phase of human evolution, starring Viggo Mortensen and Kristen Stewart. TV and streaming. On June 3rd, on Hulu, Fire Island. Joel Kim Booster and Bowen Yang star in this all-gay version of Pride and Prejudice, set at the famous gay retreat. On Netflix, Interceptor, starring Elsa Patake, as a captain fighting off a siege at a base that intercepts nuclear missiles. Returning for new seasons are The Boys, for season 3 on Amazon. Physical on Apple, with Rose Byrne. We Are Lady Parts, Season 2 of the comedy about a female Muslim ban. On the 4th, Sweet Tooth returns to Netflix about a half-human, half-deer boy in a post-apocalyptic world. Next week, want to be in pictures? I'll be interviewing Richmond's most prominent casting director. This is Jerry Williams. Thanks for listening. See you then. For more Sister, including literally thousands, thousands of, of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.